Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of the Cryptid Corporation representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you everyone for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Devin Bryant. Devin is a Los Angeles-based musician, writer, and podcast producer, formerly of bands like Furry Things and Warm Ones, and currently of podcasts like Just Jack and Will and Bad Dates for Smartless Media. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome to Revolutions Per Movie, Devin Bryant. Hi, Devin. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Good to see you. We met in person at the best show a couple months ago. That's right. And at the Island show uh, two nights before on the Sunday right. Sunday night when you guys played at, what was it, Gold Diggers? At Gold Diggers. And, but it was really nice to meet you in person. I've always heard you in the background at Hollywood Handbook and other podcasts yes. <laughs> uh, where you're... Where you're it's it's your character, you know, you're, you're included. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was really excited when I was talking to you about this project. You were the first person who was like, I want to talk about Robin Hitchcock. I want yes. to talk about storefront Hitchcock. Specifically. And I own it in three different formats. Uh, four now, because I just got the VHS last week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so are you are you a robin hitchcock completist um uh, yeah uh, well it's interesting i i mean his catalog is so vast i don't know how you could be like an actual like collector completist i'm sure there are people but you know there's so even in storefront hitchcock there's a couple tunes from here that are from like uh like a seven inch that he put out on k records that is super rare, very hard to find. Uh, I'm not. I have an MP3 basically of like everything he's ever recorded or released. Basically, at some point, someone, uh, a, f- a friend, had like the full catalog and was like, "You need to have this." And so I, I have an MP3 of everything. Right. In in terms of like actual good quality stuff, I have, you know, tons of the CDs. I have m- like all the big stuff on vinyl. Probably about twenty of his records on vinyl. Um. But and and I have a ton of the soft boys stuff as well. I love the soft boys. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I'm I, completist. I don't know. I'm really I'm really into specific areas of his of his work. And Storefront Hitchcock is kind of perfectly centered because all of the solo albums that kind of he's pulling from for this, like I and Moss Elixir, which is the one he was touring at the time. Um, and uh, I often dream of trains, which he doesn't do anything from here, but that's kind of like the genesis of this whole style of his. That's my favorite vein of him. I like him. I like him alone. I mean, I like him in a band, too, but I really like him alone. I like when he's able to just, I mean, exist in the song and it's only him, you know, providing all the rhythm and all the backdrop to the story. He can alter it. He can change it. He can do whatever he wants in the moment and often does. So I just I find him alone and untethered really exciting. And Storefront Hitchcock is like a perfect example of it. The movie we're going to discuss, Storefront Hitchcock, which was directed by Jonathan Demme. Yes, which is the other reason I wanted to talk about Storefront Hitchcock specifically, because I'm a Demme super fan also. Oh, excellent. But it's grabbing songs from 
like late 90 period solo records uh like yeah. Moss elixir and respect and then earlier things from the 80s some stuff with the egyptians um yeah. no soft boys material no. um and even some stuff that was going to come out later on start right. from bram is that what it's called and jewels for sophia yeah so it's it's a pretty interesting mix i was excited that you picked this because dagger to your heart i've never seen this film ah i've never that's seen exciting it. that's great so i kind of felt like robin hitchcock was just always there i remember discovering him right. on uh, iris is the cutting edge they had a couple videos for i often dream of trains and man with the light bulb head yes exactly and i thought it was really amazing and and you know obviously very steeped you know when you're young and kind of steeped in mythology and sound of sid barrett solo work and things like that Definitely. just direct line to it but yes. i but i couldn't find like a soft boys record in portland no. oregon so eating eating this film was a lot different than how you devoured it sure so, so where did you get turned on to robin hitchcock first then um so it's interesting the the uh, this is true of a lot of different things that i end up being super into and and become kind of cornerstones of my personality the first time i come across it i don't like it yes. so the first time i ever encountered robin hitchcock well actually not true the first time i ever encountered him was the song balloon man from queen elvis which was on one of those cmj uh new music samplers that came with that magazine back in the 90s and i collect i loved those cds that you know 22 tracks that were on there every single whatever it was i think bi-monthly or yeah every two months and i was i loved that song it's a great upbeat beatlesy pop song with very strange lyrics and you know that appeals to me that's my style kind of um but the first time i ever really came across him was seeing him live um, at the Flaming Lips headphone tour that they did, uh, the tour for the Soft Bulletin. And, and the, the, this was the first iteration of them touring uh, without Stephen playing drums. And the way they did this show, this was in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I can't remember where it was. It might have been the Orpheum. They, um, or the Ogden, rather. They, uh, they handed out headsets and you're supposed to put on the headphones and the idea would be that you'd hear all the music in stereo. They're being like sent to a uh, radio transceiver though. So they're like, it was delayed from what was happening on stage and what's happening on stage is so much louder than your headphones could be that it did not work at all. It didn't work. Um, it was a great idea, but I right. mean, everyone in the room just was like, okay, I'm just going to take these off so I could just listen to the music because yeah. it was a cool idea. I was really excited about it. Um, but so the lineup that night was uh, Sonic Boom from Spaceman 3 was oh, amazing. Yeah, he was doing his um, he made a record at the time called Data Rape that was like a uh, circuit bent speak and spell record. There was only <laughs> only that. And so I've his, never heard of that. It was I used to have it on vinyl. I don't anymore, unfortunately. But um, the the live show was just him with like a whole floor laid out of like 16 speaking spells. They were all circuit bent. And he just did stuff with them for like 25 minutes. And it was amazing. It was so cool <laughs> that I went out and bought the record after that. Um, and Sebado were on the show that night and they played for 15 minutes. And then uh, they like it seemed like they broke up on stage, like they got in an actual fist fight. <laughs> I've seen three shows where I was like, this is the last Sebado show. <laughs> totally. I even saw a solo Lou Barlow show where I was like, I think this is the last Lou Barlow show. Um, so it was kind of the dynamic of, uh, yes. of that band. It was, it was really, and I was a huge fan of theirs. Bake Sale being one of my favorite records, literally right. of all time. I like it almost better than every Dinosaur Jr. record. I'm so attached to Sebado's Bake Sale. Um, so they played and then Robin Hitchcock came out 
And he was right before Flaming Lips. And it was something about exactly what I love about Storefront Hitchcock. It was his onstage banter, right? Yes. That just goes where it goes and is what it is. And we, you have to surf his mind waves. You know, you got to go with him. And I wasn't going with him that night. I was like, this guy is irritating. Um, maybe maybe he'll play Balloon Man, the one song I know. And I'll be like, but he didn't. He was playing basically this type of stuff. You know, it would have been 99. So it's a couple years later, but it's, you know, he's, if he's still touring Jules for Sophia and Star for Brom, he's still playing quite a few songs from this. Um, okay. And the one I remember most is the very last song, which is a hidden track on one of those two records. I can't remember which one it is, but it's uh, Don't Talk to Me About Gene Hackman which is <laughs> a, it's an amazing song. <laughs> Don't talk to me about Gene Hackman. It's such a great song. Um, that night, it was the final straw for me. I was like, fuck this guy. He's just right. he, he's just here goofing around. Like, he's not even taking this seriously. I was such a, like, little dickhead 19-year-old who was just like, <laughs> music should be taken seriously. Everything's important and serious, you know? And I yes. just, I wasn't in the mood for his whimsicality that night. Which is odd because I was at a Flaming Lips show, and what are they if not whimsical, especially on Soft Bulletin era? Um, anyway, fast forward, and exactly what you said about Soft Boys being so hard to find uh, for years, like it was difficult to you couldn't find, get a copy of Underwater Moonlight until Matador put out that reissue. Yes, that's where I heard it. Exactly, me too. And and even though I had this thing that I'd been carrying then for I don't know what that was, maybe two thousand two, three that they put that out. Um, in my head, I've been carrying this thing that I don't like Robin Hitchcock. I knew he was in the Soft Boys, but something about the cover of Underwater Moonlight and the logo of the way Soft Boys is written on it and flipping it over and seeing, oh, this is three CDs with like, it's got all the like rehearsal tracks on that yes. third CD and all the singles and stuff. I was like, I, I, I would buy I would buy that kind of thing from almost any artist because it's just such a big amount of stuff to like, I, I even if I didn't like them, I'd be interested to hear it just because it's like, it's like reading a, you know, I say this all the time, but I would watch a rock documentary about pretty much any band. I would watch Me a too. Zappa one. I hate Zappa. I'm not yes. a Zappa fan. Loved that Zappa documentary. Don't like Steely Dan. The Grateful Dead one. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. I was like. Totally. My wife was like, you're still at it. You've had to break <laughs> it up. I'm like, I need a break. <laughs> I keep trying to find the part of the documentary where that they're going to win me over. Is it like, yeah. <laughs> is it the warlocks? No, no. <laughs> is it their culture? No. Is no. it the people behind the scene? I'm just like, eh. definitely not. <laughs> but it was still really well told and fascinating. Exactly. So, so, you know, with that kind of curiosity, that's what made me get soft boys. And from there, my whole opinion of Robin Hitchcock just, you know, did a complete flip. Cause I was like, I understand now. I, I, I get kind of now, now with Underwater Moonlight, I saw where he had started, essentially, and where he was kind of coming from. And like you say, the Sid Barrettness came through in a different way there. The uh, the Monty Python came through in a different way there, where I really kind of internalized that he was he was a part of that world and the Bob Dylan, which is like such a huge part of it. Yeah, I I think it's a important rite of passage to have things not be understood on first listen or first yes. watch. Yes. And then there's something in it that makes you not completely give up on it. That's right. My first Gotta Buy Voices stuff I ever heard, didn't like it. Sure. And then I ended up being in that band and it was my favorite <laughs> band. I couldn't I couldn't wait to be in that band. Yeah. I just I had to see them live to understand it. Right. I, I was at this point like going like, oh, I love the grifters, all this <clears> lo-fi <throat> stuff, but maybe I've had enough of this lo-fi thing. Yeah. And uh and then they're like an amazing rock band. Uh right. You know, um, even when I first heard Radio for Europe by R.E.M., I was wow. with some I was with some friends 
that were we heard it and we kind of making fun of it. Right. But then right. they kept playing a commercial with a little snippet of that. And through the course of the evening, I think I was like secretly like, I think I love it. Yes. And because you own it and it's sitting on your shelf, you just kind of have to go back and be like, well, maybe I like this second track and the the, the second side's pretty good. And then it just, yeah. you, my favorite things are things I didn't understand on the first listen, like the fall. Yeah. Got it. Got definitely. it. By voices. Um, you know, even getting like meat puppets up on the sun. I was sure. like, what is yeah. this? Like, yeah. and, uh, but it's, it's great. It's one of my favorite things ever. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a, a lovely experience for people to have. Um, and then especially like someone like yourself, then you just go full in yeah. and, and you're just like uh, laser focused yes. on an artist. What, what really cemented me as a fan of his is, is two separate things. One of which is storefront Hitchcock, but I'll save that. The, the first thing is, so after getting super into underwater moonlight, I'm like, where do I go now? And, for some reason, I probably because the title is so good and the cover is so good, I picked up I Often Dream of Trains. And it had so many songs on it, which just seemed like value when you're, you know, kind of 22 and you can only afford to buy a CD or two that week, you right. know. Um, so I was like, I'm going to get I Often Dream of Trains. Now, the band I was in at the time, which was Scotland Yard Gospel Choir, <laughs> we... That's that's the name. <laughs> You've been in some really good band. Like, wasn't it like Pain Killer, Pain Killer the, the Pigeon? Yeah, that's my yeah. my name for my solo yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, Scott Yard Gospel Choir was was sort of a Bell and Sebastiany tinged kind of folk rocky thing, um, and we went down to South by Southwest that year, and drove from Chicago. So that's like a twenty four hour drive if you do it straight, basically. Mm -hmm. And so and we did with people rotating who was driving, people sleeping overnight, and just to get there and get back and do our shows. On the drive down was the first time I'd put on or I even opened. I often dream of trains. As we're, as we're driving out, I was the first person who got to like sleep, you know, the first chunk, and then I was going to do some overnight driving. So I put on, I often dream of trains and like fell asleep because I look ever since I'm a baby, I can fall asleep in a car, like no problem. That's just like <laughs> that kind of motion. Like it's a switch I can flip. <laughs> like no wow. problem. That's a, so, that's a secret. It kind of is. Yeah. And so I kind of slept with this CD playing on repeat over and over and over again for like three, four hours. And I just kept waking up in the middle of like, you know, whatever, a uh, heart full of leaves or, you know, uh, uh, my, my favorite buildings or uh, bones on the ground. And just kind of like the, by the time I actually listened to it consciously for the first time in the morning, it was like, I already knew every single song. They were yeah. already baked into my subconscious. And it was like, I was familiar with all of it. And and I, I maintain that that is maybe the best way to get into Robin Hitchcock is to let it, percolate in your head for a while before you choose to pay attention to it if that well, makes sense well this film affected me that way Good. um it it made me want to dive in more than i had because yeah. he had always been on the outskirts there's just too much music to love and devour and no kidding to put in my heart yeah and, yes and exactly. in a weird way it was like robin hitchcock is fine without my fandom you know yes. i just felt like <laughs> Like he, even though he, he seemed like a bit of a cult figure, it seemed like he was touring constantly Yeah. Um, and putting out records constantly. Um, he didn't seem like a tragic figure um, no. in terms of, of, you know, he's, I don't know. And even his interviews about, you know, like how 
you know, he switched from being the soft boys into the Egyptians and going solo. You know, it's he's so funny and he's so poetic yes. Yes. and uh, and such a satirist. And I, I'm a I'm a music person first and a lyric person second. Yeah, I would but, say I am, too. So how do you how do you deal with someone like Robin, who who is really incredible at, at meshing the two like you need yeah. his, you need his sense of snark and humor and and weirdness right um and i mean really they're poems these songs rarely repeat any yeah. lyrical content that's right um but does it did it was that a challenge for you at all you know because mm-hmm. i then learned to like love the music i kind of went into it lyrics first for a change with yeah him. yeah yeah, that's that's uh, that would be the case with me. I mean, I, I I'm sort of half and half. Like there there are super chunk records that are my favorite album of all time, and I I would know maybe ten lyrics on it. You know what I mean? Right. I, there 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 are certain things that are like that, but then there is like "Guided by Voices" where I know like a lot a chunk of those lyrics, even though they're so yeah. strange. Maybe that's why they stick in my head because they're they're memorable, and, and that's certainly the case with with Robin Hitchcock. But like. If you're kind of starting with I Often Dream of Trains, I mean, the first track with lyrics is sometimes I wish I was a pretty girl so I could look at myself in the shower. Like, whether you're a lyric person or not, that's sticking in your mind. That's not going anywhere once you yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah, that song, uh, 1974. Yes. Um, what I, a magnificent I, piece that I is. I know. I printed out the lyrics because there are some things in it that Oh, the illusions, the references are so amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. So, uh, and it feels like 1974, waiting for the waves to come and crash on the shore, but you're far in land, you're in funky denim wonderland. Yep. You know, David Crosby and a bloke, and a bloke with, no, with hand. no hand. You've got hair in places. Most people Most haven't, people got, haven't brains. got brains. <laughs> and then there's the uh, Sid Barrett's last session. He can't sing anymore. He's going to have to be Roger. Roger now for the rest of his life. Oh, my goodness. Okay, keep going. uh this was a song so 1974 one of the times i saw him i uh requested this from the audience because he was asking he was like anybody have any requests when he was singing solo and i was like 1974 this was in 2017 so this is post trump being in office and that the all the run about nixon in those lyrics like as nixon left the white house you could hear people say they'll never rehabilitate that mother no way and uh, worry, worry goes the helicopter out of my way. I've got a president to dump in the void. And that just the whole crowd at the turf club in St. Paul just was like, yes. And he had to hold that cord for like a while to let the like <laughs> anti-Trump ire kind of like percolate. It was, it was kind of an awesome moment of connection of that song. That that Nixon part also got to me because uh, it really was like, wow, it just is a um continuing story isn't it that's right like you can really insert any politician's name into this yeah and and it's just a cycle yeah you know and so i thought it was it's really beautiful it it talks about like working in record stores in 74 and discovering music and and just being a weirdo and rebel uh, rebel was your favorite song on the archway road where it all where it all belonged yeah it's great (laughs) It's amazing. And, and the reference I really love to um, uh, at the very end of the song, Python's last series and the Guardian said the stench of rotting minds, which is a real review of the fi- the fourth series of Monty Python's Flying Circus, which is really funny to just put that in the song. I mean, it is 1974. That's when it came out. But I just love the specificity and the details of the things he loved when he was that age during that year. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure 
reading something like that pissed him off and he just it just stuck in his head. He's never and then, <laughs> gotten over it. <laughs> and then it says uh, the song ends. You could vote for labor, but you can't but you anymore. Can't anymore. Mm. Digging uh, feels like 1974. Digging Led Zeppelin in Grimsby. Oh Christ! Oh Christ! That's it. My, that's such a great ending too. I know. Oh Christ! Yeah, amazing. Incredible. Yeah, I adore that song. Well, well, let's get into the movie. Um, yeah. The the film Storefront Hitchcock came out in uh, 1998, and I I believe you can, you're an expert, so you can correct <laughs> me on this, but. Um, Jonathan Demi had reached out originally to uh, Robin Hitchcock when he was a producer on uh, that thing you do was asking him to contribute tracks, uh, original songs for that. Yeah. And Robin says it was yet. I'm not going to do his voice. What should I do his voice? <laughs> but it, it was yet another of the birds ripoffs I've become renowned for. That's right. <laughs> they didn't use it in the movie, but Jonathan and I sort of got acquainted at that time. So, mm-hmm. but basically um, that's, that's how they met. And, and, Jonathan really wanted to do like a live video and then it expanded into an idea yeah. of of doing a full concert. Uh, Demi was inspired to film uh, in a storefront setting by a Hungarian theater group, Squat Theater, which yes, who, yes. that operated in New York City in the 70s and 80s and typically performed in that storefront against a large plate glass window facing the street. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Demi, who produced, you know, one of the top music concert films of all time stop making sense i mean maybe the best yeah it may be the best i saw it's in the conversation anyway for yeah. my parents took me to that tour um i saw wow. i saw that the the speaking in tongues tour or whatever it was called uh, yeah definitely. and so th- that movie when it came out people were dancing in the aisle standing up like it was a concert yeah like in a movie theater and I, I feel like they, he's trying to capture a bit of that magic in this film with with mm-hmm. different simple stage settings, very small moves, um, yeah. stage hands bringing things in, in, in and out. I feel like because it is a smaller stage, it is a little, some of the transitions are a little clunkier than, let's say, Stop Making Sense, where you've got mm-hmm. more space. So when sometimes seeing yes. somebody like blow out a candle while Robin Hitchcock is doing his thing, you're kind of like, <laughs> Oh, like I was, I mean, it's not a big deal, but I think stylistically, yeah. I don't know if every thing in this movie works once they start kind of shutting out the outside. That's interesting. There's a, there's a, I saw one, this is a very underseen movie. And for proof of that, you could just look on Letterboxd where it has been reviewed by a sum total of 75 people. That's it. That's it. it. This is a very obscure and and a rare movie. But a couple of people on there said a very similar thing to what you just said, which is that they kind of wish the window had been open the whole time or that we, we got that sort of interaction between outside and inside more throughout the movie. But I kind of like the way it feels like it goes in. It, it becomes smaller and smaller as it goes. And it goes right. inside of Robin Hitchcock is what I feel like. We, we're ever more just in the landscape of his mind and what he's thinking. And you never see the audience in this movie, which is interesting. You yes. hear them, but you only see the stage. Um, I, I guess in the opening shot where he says, uh, hi, is my hair all right? OK, let's go. You do see like a couple people in the edges of some chairs, but that's the most yeah. you ever get a sense of what it looks like to, to Robin. You don't know. You're watching him. And I, I kind of like that. But yeah, like when it gets so small, like in like in You and Oblivion, which is one of my favorite songs in the whole movie, where the only staging is just a simple, a simple single light bulb. 
that's just hanging down by his head. And that's it. That's the whole staging for that song. Yeah, I, I did enjoy that. And because it, it, it allows for that moment. One of the most riveting moments in the whole movie when he just stares straight down the lens and the camera just holds on him for like a bit, staring straight at you. And he says, right when the death train got my ma, right when the death train got your pa. And it's just like, whoo. I mean, I, I, I'm currently experiencing some goosebumps thinking about it. Because he, he's just, and, and this is another thing that I love about the movie in general, is that the theme overall is very dark. I mean, most of the songs are about death. Um, they are. Or about the past or, or lost people, you know, things that are, can never be reclaimed, ghosts, things like that. It's, a, it's, it's kind of, for, for, for someone who spends so much of the movie's running time doing those strange, surreal flights of fancy that he does in between songs, it's interesting how heavy the actual material is. Um, and, and he, you know, he introduces maybe the heaviest song lyrically, the Yip song from Respect. He introduces that by saying like, here's a song about cancer. Like <laughs> here's another one. Here's a pop, pop song about cancer. Um, and there's a dedication for yeah. Raymond Hitchcock. It says 1922, 1992. That's right. For his father. Uh, yeah. I think without that introduction and without that title card, you may not have had the context. Yes. I mean, the version on Respect doesn't let you in to what the song's actually about. It's too produced. It's too it's too shiny and upbeat, which, I mean, that is what he's going for, is the juxtaposition of shiny, upbeat music. The yip, 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 yip with this horror, like, my dad is dying right now. Like, um, yes. you, who is Vera Lynn? Oh, Vera Lynn is the person who sings um, We'll Meet Again at the end of Dr. Strangelove. She was... The Force's okay. Sweetheart, which is a phrase he uses in the song. Um, she was known as the Force's Sweetheart because all the uh, squaddies in World War II like, loved Vera Lynn records. That was like, okay. that was what kind of kept spirits up. And so when he right. says, Force's Sweetheart, you're my twin in that song, what, what, he, what he's saying from his father's perspective is, you and I are both dead now. Just like Vera Lynn, I am also now dead, which is amazing. I know it's very, it's very heady and strange, but you don't need to notice it. You could just go along with the sound of that song and go like, oh, that Yip song is pretty good. And then one, you know, one day you might pick up two or three words and go, is this song about his father dying slowly? <laughs> this is horrifying. It's amazing. Uh, it is very poppy, very catchy. Yeah. Do you know how many I, I counted? Do you know how many times he's saying? Yep. Oh. Guess how many times it says Yip in, in the live version. I'm going to say like 90 higher. Really? Uh, 140. Little higher. <laughs> what? 150? Yeah, 150 times. On the dot. No shit. Yeah. He does 47, <laughs> 45, then 48. So He's many. He's on fire. He's like, yep, 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 Constantly. <laughs> also, it's one of the rare times in the movie where there's like a tracking shot. It tracks right into him uh, really yes. close. So it's very... Stop Making Sense does a few things like that where all of a sudden you're taken out of the reality of of it being a concert and the right. distance and all of a sudden there's like a real stylized move that could only be done without a crowd um right and and, right. and shot at a different time um yeah it has and, to it, be. and it was yeah. shot over two days um yeah i think they did it three times okay. i think i remember okay. reading that they did the whole set list three different times well there's a reason why there's only a few reviews the film was funded by Orion Pictures and it it just it declared bankruptcy right before this film came out. Yeah. And in Hitchcock's words, when MGM kind of unzipped their stomachs to see what they'd <laughs> swallowed, they pulled out Orion 
and they cut open Orion's stomach. And inside Orion's <laughs> stomach was wriggling storefront Hitchcock, a little kind of minuscule million dollar project that MGM wasn't particularly interested in. And um, in its original U.S. release, it only played in one theater in New York, Ugh. film form for one week, starting in November uh, of 1998. And the worldwide gross was less than $13,000. Jesus. And, and like one of the reviews of the time, there, there was a review in Variety that it's just it's amazing. It says his songs can seem too calculatedly wacky at times, particularly amid mm -hmm. studio recording gloss. And Hitchcock's best forum has long been live performances, where his nasal yet rich, supple voice shines and his seemingly impromptu between song patter suggests a pleasing form of mild insanity. Yeah. So let's get into his banter. Yes. Because for me, I had the same reaction you did. <laughs> I was not prepared for it. Right. I was not necessarily in the mood for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, so my first watch through of this film I was kind of like, all right, he's going to do his thing again, and it's going to be all stream of consciousness and very weird. I, I know what he's trying to say, and there's some gravity to it. Yeah, um, yeah. But I didn't know how if it was very successful, um, just because I'd never seen him do this before. And then the song would come on, and I'd be like, oh, this is amazing. And then it would kind of take me out. But I feel like people, they desire that from him when they go to see him live. Yes. Yes. Does he say the same thing about every song on different tours or is he kind of like he it... does not. It is okay. literally that is happening in that moment and it's gone after that and it's never repeated. And I I doubt he'd remember what he had said. It's like he go. This is what I have come to love so much about him is he really is. He's he's an open channel uh, of creativity. And and the reason he's so open is because he chooses not to cut it off. Like he allows it to just continue to flow and he tries not to look at it too square in the eye where the songs are coming from, where the inspiration is coming from. It's, it's a kind of Bob Pollardy, you know, it's like if he if he ever were to think about it too hard, it might stop. You know, it's like you, you the, the continuing to do it is what makes it continue to happen. And the talking between songs is the same as writing the songs to him like that. Those are all the same flow of consciousness. But but. I mean, you can't deny it. It's very like, for example, to introduce uh, Filthy Bird, the the second or third song where he says uh, it's my absolute favorite thing. Uh, yeah, um, this is uh, this is another one. And everyone kind of laughs because it's such a weak, lame way to introduce a song. And then he goes, well, the thing is, people, uh, I don't know why people ever actually introduce songs, because the song itself is an introduction to itself. It's like if you meet someone, uh, say they called Martha. You know, uh, I mean, you know, that ha person happens to be known as Martha, just as I might be called Bloomingdale's or Denny might be called Staten Island, you know, and you're like, wh where are we? What are what are you doing right now? But he's got a kind of a point, which is that, like, there's a whole mass of molecules in, inside of a person. And so he's like, it's the same with the song. I could say what a song's called, which isn't going to be much of a clue unless you've heard it before. Or I can explain what it's about and I'm going to be lying. So in the end, it's there's not much point to it. And he kind of trails off. And then my per personal favorite moment in the entire movie, he goes, that's, oh, that's interesting. There's some people over there polishing a gun carriage. Just out of nowhere, he just says that. And he goes, one of those big brass 18th century things for storing in time capsules. And Denny Benet, who's you know playing violin with him, is just laughing and looking at him. And he pauses and he goes, says to her, there's a very thin line between torture and cosmetics. I wonder, now's our chance to cross it. Okay, take a deep breath and yip-a-dang. One, two, three, four. You're like, that's the intro of the song Filthy Bird, which appears to be a song about like environmental 
like uh you know climate change i guess really like the the changes you know the the changes to the environment and also the changes to people's mental environment based on the filthy stuff that's coming off the television and so he kind of i mean the song tells you what it's about like he says it's like i could say what it's called but who cares like the song itself is its introduction to itself um but it's funny that he takes two and a half minutes to say that as as the introduction to the song like i'm not going to introduce this song and here's two and a half minutes of me explaining why i'm not going to it's a very confusing thing to do it's very funny hearing you you know this banter inside out yeah you're reciting it back to me like like we used to do with comedy albums we would exactly know everything right. about you know a steve martin album or gilda radner or whatever yes. and you would just you know spit it back out often yes often not knowing what you were saying but yeah. it's really it's really <laughs> interesting to hear uh that the banter is 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 right there with his lyricism and his music it's just part of the complete character who is yeah robin hitchcock yes and, and you know uh you mentioned robert pollard earlier and it yeah. was funny he also you know, throughout the years, just started putting more and more stage banter into things. Right. C culminating in those com and the relaxation of the asshole records. Yes. He put out, he put out two, two comedy banter <laughs> records. Um, and I remember there were times where people would be looking at us in the audience who may not have seen this before. And mm -hmm. they're like, are you going to play another song? Like they they had a look of fear right. in their at eyes. At any point, is there a song at some point? <laughs> and I, I, I just... I remember telling somebody in um, Louisville, I was like, they're like, are you, is the show done? Are you going to like, what's going on? I said, no, no, you're getting two shows tonight. That's right. This means it's, it's not going to be a two and a half hour show. It's going to be a three and a half hour show. <laughs> We're not right. cutting any songs. You're just going to have to let him do something. And I remember one time he, uh, when he had a solo band with uh, Tommy Keene. Yes. Yes. The Ascended Masters. Uh, Tommy just kind of went into his song because Bob was talking really long and Bob was not happy about being cut off. He was like, never cut me off when I'm on a roll. Like, this is like, he gets as much joy out of that as he does performing his exactly. songs. Exactly, right. So, yeah. um, it, Here's another interesting element of this, of the project known as Storefront Hitchcock is that every, and you kind of mentioned this at the beginning, there are multiple versions of it. Every version is different. Um, every version has something unique to it that the others do not have, which is strange. The The movie is very short. It's only an hour 17. Uh, the double vinyl version is an hour 37. So it's got an extra 20 minutes, and, and that is primarily taken up by two songs that are only on the vinyl, uh, one of which is actually maybe my favorite song in the whole Storefront Hitchcock universe, and I am sad that it doesn't seem to exist as a video. They must have filmed it. But uh, st Statue with a Walkman is what it's called. The vinyl version is maybe seven, eight minutes long. And it's one of the most perfect, like in terms of what we're talking about right now, Statue with a Walkman as performed in Storefront Hitchcock is the exact center point of these two things. It is a song that has been composed. The song has been modified for this live version to leave spaces for this long spoken word ramble that he does, um, explaining the Statue with the Walkman and talking about um, having uh, having ladles of creosote at night with the men of, of influence or something. It's so <laughs> it's so strange. But then the lyrics themselves are just, you know, statue with a Walkman knows his hemoglobin count. 
statue with a Walkman, uh, uh, always the correct amount or something. It's like they're very and it's hard to even know what that song is about. But as done in the vinyl version, it's exactly banter and a song at the same time, which nice. is just, you know, and I have no idea if he pre-written if he had pre-written any of those uh things that he sang about the creosote and the men of influence i don't know if that's just total rap banter off the top of his head it seems like it might be um but yeah the vinyl version has statue with the walkman and also a great song called eerie green storm lantern which is kind of a kind of a rarity of his um and it, i'm not quite sure why those are only I, when you have a movie i mean i guess i don't know you want to keep it kind of tight but it just seems strange to me to not have at least one or two more. Um, there's songs in the movie that aren't on either of the soundtracks. There's, yeah, is there a yeah. Jimi Hendrix cover on the, the, the Wind Cries Mary is on both CD and vinyl. It's beautiful, okay. great it's cover. Not in the movie. It's not in the movie. Um, neither is. Uh, let's see. Uh, so the weirdly, the opening track in the movie, The Devil's Radio, uh, which is from Moss Elixir, is not on either of the soundtracks. It's only in the movie. Um, right. So is I Am Not Me, which was the. Uh, um, which was the K Records single. Uh, That one is also only in the movie and not on either of the soundtracks. Then there's ones that are uh, only on the CD, like Filthy Bird, um, You and Oblivion and Airscape. Uh, Not in the movie also is Where Do You Go When You Die, which is a fantastic song. That's on the CD and the vinyl. So it's, it's strange that this thing exists, but it's like, it's almost like there is no one definitive version of the 19 song set list that they did. You okay. kind of have to collect it from, from everywhere. Um, yeah, that's pretty and, wild. Yeah. It, I kind of like that, that it's like mysterious, it's sort of mysterious and unknowable. Even, even me who's watched it, you know, I don't know what 50, a hundred times, something like that. Uh, Cause it's just a, it's a comfort thing for me. I'll just have it on in the background often, you know, cause I just, uh, I don't know. It's just, it, it, calms me down it's it's a good place for my brain to exist when this is percolating in in my background you know um, but even even with all this familiarity i still don't know it 100 percent. i still will never know it because it's like it's it's unknowable it's it's a it's a an idea and a project which came out as a film a book or sorry a film a vinyl a, a cd like that are all distinct versions all the banter is different on the other versions too oh i didn't know that yeah, the, the banter on the vinyl version is totally different. There's a couple that are the same, but even then it has different edits of the ones that are in the movie. Like before he plays uh, Freeze, which is a great rocker, right before that in the movie, he looks at the camera and he says, uh, what was the kindly old lady made of? Right? right? On the vinyl version, we understand that actually there's another line to that. He says, what was the kindly old lady made of? Fuck ass rock and roll, <laughs> which they don't have in the movie. That's funny to me. <laughs> I want to talk to you about these versions of these songs, like a yes. song like you mentioned, Freeze. It's a really incredible choice. Um, it's originally a Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptian song that is a really propulsive song with really dense instrumentation yeah. and percussion. Right. And here he is just playing it on an electric guitar. Just him and that telecaster. A little distortion. Yeah. And um, and for the majority of the song, it's one note, mm-hmm. like a drone song. Yes. But it's just killer. It's so uh, killer. It it you know I I went you know I discovered the original song after hearing this, and I was just blown away by the choices that he constantly makes in this film. They're pretty brave in terms of not comfortable choices necessarily or obvious choices that you'd be like, okay, this is a singer songwriter <laughs> thing we're gonna do. Jonathan Demi's gonna do it, and what what would be the best things that would 
compliment me having one person or occasionally like a violin player playing yeah. or an additional guitar player. Most of the time, it's just him. Yeah. For for ninety percent of the film. Yeah. I was just curious about what you thought uh, of his choices and it's 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 an interesting selection. It's it's mostly sort of contemporary. I mean, there's songs that the, you can tell that Moss Elixir has just been you know is, is what he's technically touring because there's quite a few from Moss Elixir. Um, and, and mostly they're kind of in the recent-ish slipstream of like the last two uh, Egyptians records. There, there's one from Fegmania, and, that, which is I think the earliest thing on here. Like he has songs that are, um, that, that would be known, you know, beyond him. Like say, you know, you could do Madonna of the Wasps here, you know, that was a radio single. Or you could do um, So You Think You're In Love from Perspex Island, that was a radio single. That did pretty well, but no, he avoids all that stuff. I mean, you wouldn't if you if you weren't an obsessive, you probably wouldn't know a single one of these songs. Um, but in a way, I kind of think that's the power of it because it's like this is an object. I almost feel like Jonathan Demi's entire reason for making it is, I mean, very pure. I think he loves Jonathan or he loves Robin Hitchcock. He loves his music. He really thinks he's uh, a brilliant like I say, an open channel, and he wants to capture exactly what that's like to be taken by surprise by a Robin Hitchcock performance. And I think that kind of plays into the the reason why the music is kind of obscure songs of his. It's like let's 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 focus this on a set of songs that can that does kind of tell a certain sort of a story, certainly tonally, certainly mood wise, there's a story being told. Um, but also let's not worry about whether anyone's ever heard of you or are familiar with it. Let's just, let's just let exactly what you do be the film. Um, and which is what makes me so sad that it, you know, that it, like you say, made what, what $13,000 when it first came out and played in one theater. Like that's just so depressing for something that it's really clear. The two of them poured a lot of uh, thought and energy into like this, this doesn't just happen. No, it's, it's masterful in yes. terms of like, I mean, Jonathan Demi is making choices. Yes, he is. You know, we're gonna we're gonna have in this song, we're gonna we're gonna lower, we're gonna put a gauze over the window so you can see a little bit outside. Now we're gonna bring a disco ball on. Yes. Now there's a tomato. Yeah. Now there's a light bulb. <laughs> tomato. Now the now the now we can see outside again and it's a little darker. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about Jonathan Demi's direction in this. Yes. And, and you say you're a Demi fan. Definitely, I love him. But first, one of the most amazing thing that happens in this film right out of the gate is he is playing in front of a window and people are walking by. Mm. My first instinct from watching this was some of this has to be staged. Like almost immediately, there's somebody standing there with a photograph. A, a big photograph, a blown up photo. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just standing in the corner, just staring into the thing. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be this kind of film. Right. It's, there's going to be characters coming in interaction but yeah. right away you realize nope that was just somebody going by saw that something was being filmed put it up there they kind of wander off there's a lot of people like congregating and pointing and yeah walking away is there is do you have a favorite moment with in terms of the staging um i do i do love the light bulb and i i also like the the candles for glass hotel um, because that's just like a perfect, that is what that song should, that's how that song should be staged is lit only by flickering candles. Like you shouldn't be able to see, you should almost not even be able to see him. Like that song is so fragile and small and, 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 and dark. And I just, I love that. I know it's so, so I keep picking the most simple ones, but I just really like those. The, the disco ball for Airscape is awesome too, because it's like, 
the first bit of glitz really in the entire movie and it's just it's such a relief to see like some sparkle and shine at that point which is kind of amazing it's like a fake out rock moment it's like hey we're at a (laughs) rock show remember (laughs) like i'm i'm you know let's let's put some razzle dazzle in here yes exactly um, so I like all that. I, I really love that moment, though, that, as you say, the guy just holding that photo of it's like a, uh, a guy holding a cat. And I, I feel like I read at some point or there's some interview that says that that's that's someone. I don't know if it was someone they knew or if it was like a, a, a known like New York Street, like, a, a, you know, one of those kinds of characters that you get. Um, it was something like that. But th- that's that is someone. And I, I, I apologize that I can't quite remember, but I know I've come across oh. that information before that that's somebody I got to end. <laughs> I got to end this interview right now. OK, uh, All right, that, that that Later. is a try. You're supposed to know everything. <laughs> come on. I don't know absolutely everything. No, I just said it was mysterious. And well, what about um, what about, yes. you know, uh, swing to Cambodia? Yes. You know, another stage performance that you know it was stylized at times and other times yes like a live performance and also uh neil young's heart of gold which comes after this by what eight nine years which similarly kind of has staging that's bespoke for each song and kind of transitions in that way that kind of makes it uh almost a stage show as much as it is a concert which is something that i love about demi in general um i just want to say this uh while i'm thinking about it but the 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 thing that I love about the way Demi makes movies is that he's so empathetic to his characters. He doesn't put any judgment on his characters. You don't you don't feel an author's hand begging you to think this way or that way about any of the characters in his movies, including Hannibal Lecter. You know what I mean? You're 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 encouraged to see Hannibal Lecter for exactly what he is, which is a brilliant guy and a dangerous killer. You know what I mean? Like those can both be true. And so like even in a movie like Married to the Mob. Like that is a movie that in anyone else's hands is just some rom-com. That's a good time or whatever. But that movie has such interest in the people that it's looking at. It it, it loves Michelle Pfeiffer and it loves the, the uh, Dean Stockwell character, even though he's the bad guy. Like it loves its character so much. And so when that is applied to his performance films, it becomes this other thing entirely. And, and Stop Making Sense, what he's doing is almost... uh, making sure that each one of the band members is treated like a character. You get your time with them. You get to understand exactly what they do. You get to like, you hang out on this corner of the stage for a little bit and just hang out with Tina Weymouth and, you know, over here and you just hang out with Steve Scales for a bit. Um, And that carries through all of his performance films, including, and this may sound silly, his final film, which I really like, the final film he ever made, which is Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. I've never seen it. It's a live Justin Timberlake show from uh, Las Vegas. At his, I think it was the last show of his like huge multi-year residency or whatever that he did in, in Vegas. Um, I, I'm not, you know, like we were saying before, I'll watch any rock doc. I, I'm not like a, the hugest Justin Timberlake fan, but it is Jonathan Demme doing a Justin Timberlake. And I'm like, I am interested to see what that's like. Yeah. And it's exactly the same. You, you get to know his band members. You care about the bass player. You care about the drummer. It, he he's interested in the people he's looking at and he wants you to be interested in them too. He th- that's his entire thing. And that movie um, and thus his whole career brilliantly ends with something that under underlines all of this, which is uh, after the concert's over the credits roll over like a four or five minute sequence of what it took to set up that show. You've just been watching. Like we watched the crew build the stage, hang the lights, like build the 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 thing that is like this giant glass moving structure that is so impressive in the show. 
someone actually had to make it. And Jonathan Demme cares about those people too. And he ends his career and his final film by just showing you the little people that it takes to make the big thing that you're so impressed by. Um, and that I think is like, that's his philosophy in, in a nutshell. You know, that's exactly what's so great about him. And so in Storefront Hitchcock, it's exactly the same. He wants you to understand the character of Robin. Uh, he's less interested in getting you into the character of Denny and, and Tim Keegan who come on to, right. to play, but he's, he still gives them their moments. They like certainly in, in Filthy Bird and uh, Let's Go Thundering, D Denny Benet's vi like electric violin stuff is fucking awesome. Yeah. Like she's making some crazy sounds out of that thing. That's so <laughs> cool. Um, the, uh, the, there's one song called beautiful queen. It's also from Moss Elixir, not in the movie, but on both of the soundtrack versions. And on that one, she's got like a heavy octave pedal on the violin that does this big old swoop. And it has so much bass. Every time I listen to that on CD, it's almost too much. It's so intense. And it's so cool that that's just her violin, you know? So he, he wants to make sure you know what everyone's doing. Um, but really it's just, yeah, it's like, this is an, this is a, um, an empathetic portrait of this guy that he loves personally he's like i love this guy and i hope you will too which is why i'm so sad that it's such an obscure movie because it it really should be more seen i think i think it paints a, a great like it, you certainly will come away from this movie knowing exactly what it is robin hitchcock does do you know what yes. i mean like i understand he does these things yes i get it now it's you know it's a great calling card for that era in his in his career which i i do think still is maybe a, a, a peak right around then well it, as somebody who was seen it for the first time it it was very successful in terms of a i'm getting a sense of who this guy is yeah i'm not i don't know if i'm ready for the banter just like you were <laughs> these songs are amazing his lyrics are amazing his guitar playing is incredible uh, we haven't even talked about those the the multiple solos that end various songs where he just goes into the stratosphere i had no idea and one of the things i really liked about his choices was I think I always thought of him as more of, uh, I, I didn't ever think of him as a guitar player. I just always thought of him I as know. a songwriter and a lyricist. He just seemed like right. that guy. But to watch these extended freakouts yeah. uh, in the electric stuff and then just beautiful things. Um, there was uh, a song, I think it's called I'm Only You. Yeah, I'm Only and You. Yeah. Watching his hands do all this stuff, it doesn't even look like he's like i'm like how are you making these chords it doesn't look like he could be playing what you're hearing because of the weird hammer-ons that he keeps doing it's yes. so strange it was improbable and i just yes. i had to rewind it and watch it again and i was like that is incredible and so i think demi like he did with stop making sense and even in swing to cambodia he knows this is the time to really focus on this this is the time to kind of you know uh, uh, focus on the the background artist or the tomato right. or whatever you know, yeah, right. um, and it feels like a collaboration too. Like I know they were playing into each other's uh, sensibilities in terms of how to tell this because this is yes. not like Robin Hitchcock took the tomato and the disco ball on tour. No, exactly. This, <laughs> this is you know like, this was like this a, a this. concept. Yeah, right. That's right. Well, are there any songs that you wish? were in this movie that oh that's you know, interesting. Out, out of your wildest dreams like what would you love to see put in this uh selfishly i mean it would be things from it would be things from i often dream of trains it's that's the one thing that i think is is kind of strange because it, you know this coming off of moss elixir um 
which color scheme wise is tied to the previous album, uh, I, which a couple of these tracks come from also, and also right. tied to I Often Dream of Trains. Like that run of his solo records are always uh, gold and green. Those are always the colors of them for some unknown reason. Oh. And that and that holds true today. Every time he makes one of these just purely solo and acoustic records, they're always gold and green in the in the kind of artwork. Um, so so it's interesting that he he has the second and third of his like solo acoustic records represented, but not the first one where it all kind of comes from. So yeah, it would definitely be something from I Often Dream of Trains. Maybe, you know, my favorite buildings is my personal favorite from that record. But um but in terms of actually like matching with the tone that he's going for here and the kind of lost people and 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 death and ghosts, I mean, it should be something like Trams of Old London would have been perfect in this in this movie. Um, or, uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> uncorrected personality traits, something like if there was a way to do uh, like an acapella thing in this, I think that would have fit really well, too. Yes. Yes. You know, um, yeah, it would be something from those records. I think it's interesting that they're not there, but also it would have been cool. Like just um, a song like Freeze, which, like you say, in the recorded version with the Egyptians is a huge production. Seeing that stripped down to this version is really cool. So I, I would have taken any any uh, Egyptians era tracks, you know, e even even some of the hits, even a Madonna of the Wasps or a Man with the Light Bulb Head would have been cool to see sure. what how he would have done that as a solo performance. Um, cause yeah, he, he obviously recontextualized a couple of these and it's, and it was very effective. So yeah, for me, it would be something from my often dream of trains, but, uh, but I would have taken any of the Egyptian stuff reconfigured for this format. Cause yeah, it's just, it's really interesting to see them taken apart like that. Yeah. Well, Devin, I really hope that I was able to convince you to like Robin Hitchcock, <laughs> uh, with fence. our discussion. I'm on the with fence. This discussion. I feel like I, I, I brought a lot of heat and power to it. And, you know, I really hope I can crack your skull open and get some of this food inside it. There you go. Um, <laughs> I always, uh, end the interviews with the same question, but I tailor it, um, a little bit depending on the film. Mm -hmm. So, what would you give this film on a scale from one to 10 with one being the lowest and 10 being the highest? How many yips do you give this film? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, look, wait, you know what? I'm going to rephrase what? that. No, it's 10 from yips. one to 150 <laughs> yips. Okay, sure. Yep, 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 yeah. yep, 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 yep. <laughs> so do all 150. Um, I've logged it on Letterboxd multiple times. This is a movie I've seen over and over again. It's a, it's a perfect movie as far as I'm concerned. I say in one of my Letterboxd reviews of it that uh, I might like it more than Stop Making Sense, which is not to say that it's better than Stop Making Sense. Just I personally love Storefront Hitchcock to a degree that slightly pains me. Like it, it yes. aches a little bit how much I, I love the movie and the being in its in its world and being in its headspace, like I said earlier, I find just soothing and relaxing. So yeah, it's a, it's ten yips. It's one hundred and fifty yips. It's all the yips. <laughs> That's perfect. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course, it's great to see you. Yeah, great to see you too. Thank you for listening to Revolutions per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>